The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I don't know if we have any American history buffs in the room today, but uh, a little quiz for you before we get started here is um, I want to ask, does anyone here know the three unalienable rights that are written into the Declaration of Independence? There you go. Trisha works at a new Trier High School, right? Representing well. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, the Declaration of Independence is we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, you know, as Americans, this, we believe these are our God-given rights. You know, and meaning every human being has a right to these three things. And one of the central purposes of our government is to protect those rights. But I find it interesting that the writers of the Declaration, they didn't say that we're entitled to life, liberty, and happiness. But they carefully chose these words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of it. And I think even our founding fathers, they recognize that we, we live in a broken world. And while our ability to pursue happiness should never be taken from us, there is no guarantee that we will actually find happiness. In fact, this really assumes that none of us come into this world truly happy. And that is why we must preserve our right to go out and find it, right? And if you think about it, isn't that what we're all really doing? Isn't that what we're all looking for? We're just looking to be happy. I mean, if everything that we do, almost everything we do, every decision we make is centered around the pursuit of our personal happiness. You know, our decisions on, on what we study when we're in school, who we decide to marry, uh, whether to have children, how many children to have, where we live, where we decide to vacation, even our decision to uh, come and be a part of this church or join a community group, I'm guessing is based primarily on if you think it will make you happy. And we, we all want to be happy, and we'll do almost anything to get it. And I think the greatest proof of this, that we're relentlessly searching for our own happiness, is found by the way that we're willing to justify virtually anything that we do in life to find, find it. And I think it's encapsulated in this little statement that we often hear, right? Like, if it makes you happy, then do it, right? If it makes you happy, just do it. And the only moral condition that we put on this rule is, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, and it makes you happy, then just do it. And what you're really saying is, well, as long as your pursuit of happiness doesn't violate someone else's pursuit of happiness, it's all good, right? We're all just trying to be happy. We want that for ourselves. We want that for each other. 
we recognize that our quest for happiness is a universal longing. But what if I told you that our pursuit of happiness is not just a God-given right, but our pursuit of happiness is a God-given desire? And what I mean by that is it's not just an unalienable right that's protected by our government. It's an unexplainable longing given to us by God. And the truth is we all struggle to find happiness in our lives because often we seek happiness apart from God. But I believe God wants you to be happy. He wants all of us to be happy, and not just happy, unbelievably, indescribably happy. I believe God doesn't want us to settle for a worldly, fleeting, counterfeit form of happiness. I believe he wants to give us the real thing. This world is looking for happiness, but what we really long for, what we really need, is something much bigger. It's joy. Not a worldly type of joy, but a biblical kind of joy. A joy in the Lord. And he wants us to be joyful, and he wants us to find our joy in him. And that's why I believe God has given each of us a relentless desire for joy, because his desire is that we discover that he alone is the source of all true joy. You know, I grew up um, attending a Christian grade school until I was in sixth grade. And so uh, at a very young age, uh, we were taught the Westminster Catechism. Some of you may be familiar with it. And this is really nothing more than just a long list of questions and answers that are designed to teach people truths about the Christian faith. And, you know, I'll be honest, I've forgotten a lot of them, but there's one that's, that's always kind of stuck with me through all the years. And it's this one. It says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, this was written in the 17th century, and I know it sounds a little archaic, a little spiritual, but this is the answer to one question I don't think you'll want to miss because it really can redefine your purpose for living. And I think what it's saying is that our greatest purpose on earth, our chief end, is to simply exalt God by finding our joy in Him. That is why you are here. That is why I am here. This is what we were all created for. And, you know, the pastor theologian, uh, John Piper, he states this truth in in a slightly different way when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In in other words, what shines the glory of God, of who he is brightest, is when we are able to find our complete joy in him. And this is is a big deal. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, this is saying that our purpose in life is not to serve God. It's not to discover and use our spiritual gifts. It's not to be a witness or to go on overseas missions. It's not to labor for his kingdom. It's not to do any of these things. God created us for one supreme purpose, and that is to exalt him by finding our joy in him alone. So for the next six weeks, I'm going to be speaking on this topic of joy. 
within the sermon series entitled uh, Joy in the Journey. And we're going to be exploring different aspects of joy and how to grow in our understanding and our experience of our joy in the Lord. And so uh, over the next six weeks, this is at least what I've mapped out as of today. Um, Today we're speaking on the essence of joy. Uh, Next week, the essentials of joy. And then the elements of joy, the enemies of joy, the ecstasy of joy, and the eternality of joy. Um, the schedule's subject to change, so, uh, but as of today, this is kind of what I foresee um, us doing over the next six weeks. And we're going to discover together the joy that God invites us to. You excited? You excited for Dr. Steve to come back? <laughs> Um, we can all use a little more joy in our lives, right? I know I can. Uh, today in the week, and in the weeks to come, I think you'll notice that much of the biblical text for this series will come from verses or passages in the book of Philippians. And this is a letter that is often referred to as the epistle of joy. And so this morning I want to focus primarily on, on one verse, and it's found in Philippians 4, verse 4. Very simple. You can memorize it right now. It just says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, Rejoice. You know, I, I think there's, there's a lot that we can learn from this short little verse about joy. And today I just want to bring greater understanding uh, as an introduction to this series to what biblical joy is by first exposing two things that joy is not. And the one thing that I believe joy is. And I want to begin with this. That if your happiness or your joy is based on a feeling, it's not the joy of the Lord. Because joy is not just a feeling. And I know this is very contrary to what we grow up thinking, or what our culture, or even our dictionaries tell us. But joy is not just a feeling. You know, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines joy as this. It says, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires, the expression or exhibition of such emotion, a state of happiness. Now, I want you to notice the language that's used here. Uh, The dictionary defines it as an emotion or as an emotional state that's Produced by a positive circumstance. But if you think about it in this way, it really doesn't make sense to command people to rejoice, to be joyful, especially when things are bad, right? I mean, if joy is just an emotion, then it's kind of beyond our control, isn't it? You, you might as well command people to just be sad. Have you ever tried to just be sad on command? Um... One of my favorite actors is Denzel Washington. And the first movie I ever saw with him on was the movie Glory. It was one of my favorite movies. still is. And there's a scene in this movie, if you've seen it, where I think this got him the Oscar. <laughs> but, you know, he's getting, he's getting whipped unjustly. And there's this, like, single teardrop that just kind of rolls down his cheek. And it's such a powerful moment in the film. And I remember, like man, how does he do that? And I remember trying to do it. I, I was like thinking of the saddest thing that I could think of, just to try to produce like a single tear. 
I couldn't do it. I can't do it. And for me, you know, it's impossible. I, I don't know. Maybe there's, you know, some thespians in the room who can really act. But for me, it's impossible to create an emotion like that out of thin air. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, sometimes my three sisters and I, we would get spanked by my mom. And we'd get, we'd start hyperventilating. Do your kids ever do this after you get spanked really bad? <laughs> and you're, you're like trying not to cry really hard because you just do this, you're like... <laughs> <laughs> and your whole body's like convulsing like you're having a seizure. And my mom hated it when we did this and we'd cry, but... And she was, in Korean, she'd say this word like, Duk! Which, which means, keep quiet, you know? And we try really hard, but we just... And so we just cut the sound out, but our bodies were just like... We couldn't control it, right? I mean, this is such a powerful emotion, our, the grieving that we were experiencing in our discipline. And it's impossible not just to create that kind of a strong emotion... But it's, for me, it's impossible just even to contain it, right? And yet here God is commanding us to be joyful, to rejoice. How do you produce that out of thin air? I can't fake that. And yet, you know, I've often heard the most repeated command in Scripture is fear not, don't be afraid. But if that's true, then I think the second most repeated command in Scripture is rejoice. Be joyful. You know, in the Psalms alone, the word rejoice shows up 41 times. But if we find ourselves frustrated by this command to be joyful, rejoice, because it seems like an impossible ask, then what I've come to realize is perhaps we don't really understand what biblical joy is. Yes, there is an emotional component to joy. But, but that certainly is not all it is. We are called to be joyful. We are called to choose joy. Because it's not just a feeling. It's a matter of the will. It may seem unfair for God to ask his people to be joyful. But he doesn't leave us without any word on how we go about developing this fruit of the Spirit. The Bible gives us plenty of instruction on how we go about cultivating His joy in our lives. And we're going to address that in the weeks to come. But the point I want to make today is that joy, joy doesn't just happen to us. It happens within us. And it happens through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can choose joy. And just by virtue of God commanding his people to rejoice, we know this to be true. Joy is much more than just an emotional state or a feeling. It's a choice that we can make, and it involves our will. And I don't know about you, but that's actually kind of freeing to me. Because it means that my happiness doesn't have to be held hostage to how I feel on a given day. It means that my joy is not contingent upon my emotional cycles or my biorhythms. It means that joy is not something that just happens to me. Rather, it is something that I have a say in bringing about in my life. Rejoice. Be joyful. 
Choose joy. Joy is not just a feeling. The second thing that joy is not is joy is not circumstantial. And by that I mean joy is not based on our circumstances. It's not a function of what happens to us. You know, it says again in this verse, rejoice in the Lord, what? Always. Always. At all times. Not only when things are good, not only when your circumstances are to your liking, all the time. You know, in, in my journey group, uh, we've been going through this topic of gratitude together. And I think, you know, among the guys, all of us, you know, we have some minor things going on in our lives. We have some small difficulties that we need prayer for. But, but all in all, life is, life is going pretty well. We really have nothing to complain about. You know, our families are healthy. God is providing for all our needs. Uh, we're blessed. And, and we recognize that as a group. This is a good season for us, and we're thankful. We're happy. But I I realize, you know, having joy in times like this, when things are going really well, and there's little to complain about, this is kind of like the preschool level of joy. It's very easy to be joyful in those seasons when things are going your way. But when the circumstances of your life are not ideal, and you can still find joy, you can still be joyful. That's a graduate level of joy. Because biblical joy maintains itself even when things are horribly wrong in your life. You know, just a few verses later, Paul, in uh, Philippians 4, verse 10, he writes this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do you see how the joy of the Lord is is Paul's strength? It's in this joy that he can say, I can do all things. All things through him who strengthens me. This verse wasn't written for pro athletes to put on their helmets. (laughs) This is probably one of the most misquoted verses out there today. Paul's talking about in all circumstances, good or bad, I can find strength. Because my joy is in the Lord. Not long after commending the church of Philippi to rejoice, Paul lets them in on a little secret. The secret for how he himself is able to rejoice and be perfectly content. He learned it. It's not something that happened to him. It's not something that was given to him. It was something that he came to understand over time, over good times, over bad times, over plenty and in want, he learned that it wasn't the circumstances themselves that brought him happiness. It was the Lord. And the only way that he could learn this was seeing for himself, through good times and bad, the all-sufficiency of Christ, when everything else was taken from him. Can you rejoice like that? When you have nothing else in this world but Christ. 
And the only way that you can truly know that He is all you need is if you find yourself in a place where He's all you have. Paul found himself in that place many times, and he considered it a blessing because this is where he discovered the joy in the Lord. So there's reason to be joyful, even when you have nothing else. But I think Paul is able to find joy in his dire circumstances because he also was able to see over and over again in his own life how God had used his horrible circumstances to accomplish greater things, his greater purpose. He witnessed firsthand what he describes in Romans chapter 8 when he writes that, God is always working for the good of those who love him. Always. This is why to Paul, circumstances, they really have no bearing on his joy. You know, it's interesting because this church in Philippians, the church in Philippi, to whom this letter was written, was one of the first churches that Paul had ever planted. And if you go to Acts chapter 16, you, be, you can read it and learn about how this church actually gets formed. It's fascinating. You know, Paul is traveling with Silas, uh, and they're preaching the gospel to this Roman colony, Philippi. And Paul encounters this young slave girl. She's possessed by a demon, and this demon has fortune-telling abilities. And Paul, he exercises the demon out of this slave girl, and her owners, they find out, and they, they're, they're really upset. And they, they, they get over there, and they're like... You just took away our cash cow. This girl was telling fortunes and she was making us a fortune. And you just ruined it all. And so they had it in for Paul. So they drag Paul and Silas before the judges in Philippi. They trump up some charges and he gets, him and Silas get beaten really bad and they get thrown in jail. And if you're not sure what a Roman jail cell looks like, it looks nothing like, you know, the tax-funded American jail cells that you see like in prison break. You show the picture. Uh, it's often underground. It was often underground, these Roman jail cells, cold, dark, damp, infested with rodents. And you could hardly even stand in this place. The, the, you know, the height and the appearance was just so low. <clears throat> and Paul and Silas are sitting in a place just like this, beaten, battered, and bruised. And it's in this jail cell we find in Acts 16, what do they do? They're singing hymns. They're praising God. That's joy, regardless of the circumstance. <clears throat> and then, around midnight, we, we learn that an earthquake hits, and this, this shakes the whole prison foundations, and it busts open all these prison doors. And the Roman jailer, this Roman jailer, he wakes up. His only job is to make sure that no one escapes. And he realizes that all these prison cell doors have opened, or wide open, and, and he... He's thinking everyone has escaped, and so he immediately draws his sword, and he's about to kill himself. And Paul stops him. He says, wait, stop, we're, we're, we're still here. This guy is just woken up from bed. He's, he's about to kill himself. And he just, what must I do to be saved, he asked Paul. Paul says, believe in the Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And so that night, that jailer's whole household is baptized. And he, along with another convert named Lydia, who's a Gentile woman, and this Roman jailer and his family, 
these two, really nobodies, end up being the ones who plant this church in Philippi, to whom Paul now writes. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? This is how this church got started. Paul is writing to a church that got started when he was in jail. A church that was born out of horrible circumstances in which Paul is beaten. And Paul is in prison. But it was from here that a whole family is saved. And one of the first Christian churches is planted. And guess where Paul is when he's writing this letter to the Philippians? He's in a Roman jail. He's back in jail. And he's just as joyful now as he was back then in that jail in Philippi. That's joy. What's Paul's secret? How is he able to still find joy in the midst of these kind of circumstances? Well, he tells us actually in the book of Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. He's explaining to his brothers and sisters in this church, yeah, I'm in a Roman jail again. But I want you to know something. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, guys, don't don't get discouraged by the fact that I'm back in a Roman jail. Because God is up to something much bigger, much better. My being in jail has brought the gospel to this whole Roman imperial guard. And not only that, it's inspired many others in the church to boldly share the gospel. What perspective he has. His joy was not dependent upon his circumstances or his conditions because he knew that God was doing something far above and beyond himself. His joy came in trusting that God is sovereign and that he's working in and through all of his circumstances. And if you truly believe that God is always working for your good, then whatever happens to you, whatever circumstances invade your life, like Paul, you can still find joy. Because a joy in the Lord understands that you are deeply loved by God, who is in control of all things, and nothing will ever change his love for you. And he's always working for your good, and nothing can ever thwart his plan for you. That is a reason to be happy at all times. So now that we've determined what joy is not, it's not just a feeling, and it's not determined by our circumstances, let's define what joy really is. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord always. Paul doesn't just say, rejoice always. He's calling them to a different kind of joy, a joy in the Lord. Why? Because Paul knew that true joy begins and ends with Jesus. Joy is found in Jesus. You know, uh, about six years ago, my wife and I came and I flew to Maui and to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. Um, this is where we actually had our original honeymoon. We were going back to the exact same place. It was going to be awesome. It was the happiest place on earth. I don't, I don't care. Disney took that slogan, but it really belongs in Hawaii. <laughs> and after we checked into our hotel, I remember we, we drove back to the same restaurant that we had where we had our first meal on our honeymoon, and we were sitting on the patio deck 
We're watching the sunset over the Pacific Ocean. We're enjoying uh, this hula pie, this awesome dessert. And we just sat in disbelief that we'd actually made it, you know, 10 years of marriage without our kids. We're in Hawaii. This is like heaven on earth. And I remember that there was this waitress who was serving us. She, was, um, she had an accent, and I asked her where she was from. She was from Poland. She had just moved to Maui from Poland. And I asked her how long she had been on the island. She said she'd only been there a year. But she said this, and I'll never forget it. She said to our surprise, she said the island was boring. She couldn't wait to leave. I was like, girl, you're from Poland. It's <laughs> a lot better than Poland. But Hawaii, in just in the span of a year, had just lost all its luster, all its beauty, all its glory. She couldn't wait to leave. And then, to be honest, it dawned on me, you know, like, by the end of the week, I was ready to leave. I was ready to go see my kids again. I was ready. I felt stuck on this little island. You know, C.S. Lewis... He says something, this quote, that speaks to this. It says, if I find myself a desire, in myself a desire, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Deep within our hearts, we're all searching for something, someone, somewhere that can make us happy. And that pursuit can only be fulfilled by God himself. You know, as Paul wrote in this prison cell, he wasn't quite sure if he was going to live or die right in this moment. Was he going to be released or was he going to be executed? And it's in this place that he writes these words. He says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain. I will continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here Paul is in a dark, damp Roman prison cell, and he's completely unaffected by his circumstances because his joy is not dependent upon his release or his execution, not even his own life. In his mind, either way, he wins. If he lives, he gets to be with Christ. He gets to live for Christ. He gets to continue his work in spreading the gospel, spreading that joy among other believers, and that brings him great joy. If he dies, it's even better. He knows his own joy will be made complete because what he's always been longing for, to be in the presence of Jesus, will finally happen. Psalm 1611 says this, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, we mistakenly think that if we could just remove certain things in our lives, then we'll be happy. If I could just get rid of that one person. If I could alleviate just this pain. If I could remove this nuisance, then I would be happy. No, the truth is all these those things can remain. 
And you can still find joy because joy is not found in the absence of all your troubles. Joy is simply found in the presence of God. True joy is not found in the absence of your troubles. Joy is found in the presence of God. I'm going to close with this. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, our prayer ministry leads a prayer meeting every Saturday morning uh, at 9 a.m. in this room. And yesterday I came out for the first time. And during this time, I, you know, I noticed a couple that was praying to my right, and I, I really didn't recognize them at first. And I realized it was, um, it was our sister, Grace Jisoo Kim, her brother and his wife. They don't, they're not a part of our church, but they were uh, there yesterday morning to, to pray with us. And um, I'd only met him like once, a few months ago. And, you know, I had lunch with um, our elder Joseph on Thursday, just a couple days ago. And when we were meeting, he actually received a word uh, that Grace's brother, Minsu had lost his job um, as a youth pastor. And I asked Minsu, he gave me permission to share this. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what was involved. Apparently there's some politics. And he, he lost his job. And um, Joseph was sharing with me over lunch that they're expecting their fourth child. And um, he's, he's due in, I think, end, uh, beginning of October. So like five weeks. And not only that, they're expecting their fourth boy. <laughs> For that reason alone, they could use a lot of prayer. No offense, Pastor Eugene, but <laughs> you guys can start a support group or something, maybe. But, you know, as Joseph was sharing, he said, and not only that, they've discovered that this child that's in Esther's womb um, has a congenital heart defect. There's a hole in his heart. And um, he's going to need surgery if he makes it out alive. And not just that, he's going to need immediately, and he's going to need multiple surgeries. And so as I was praying right there uh, yesterday morning, I, I looked over to my right, I could see uh, Minsu and his wife Esther praying, and my heart was just going out to them. And so I, I was just praying for them. I, couldn't ima- I can't imagine what is going on just the anguish and the turmoil, these are horrible circumstances. And during the prayer time, we, we were singing a little bit, and um, we were singing this song, just, I worship you. This line over and over again. And, and I could hear Esther, just a few feet away from me, just singing out loud. I worship you. I worship you over and over again. You're the reason that I live. You're the reason that I sing. And you know, I was so moved. I was like, you know, here I am trying to minister to this couple by praying for them, that God would comfort them in the midst of their difficult circumstances, and yet God was instead using them to minister to me by allowing me to see how the joy of the Lord was their strength. You might find happiness in this world, 
But if it is of this world, it's nothing more than a cheap, counterfeit form of happiness. It's going to fade over time. It will evaporate. It will disappear when circumstances change. It will come and go with your feelings. But Jesus is offering a joy that cannot be taken from you. Jesus is inviting you to his joy. Jesus is offering up himself. Let's pray together. If you find yourself constantly searching for happiness, then I I believe today's word is for you. You you may look back at your life and see it as nothing more than just one disappointment after another. But I want you this morning to just see each and every one of those bitter disappointments in your life as a mercy of God. Because like Paul, sometimes we need to find ourselves in that place where we have nothing. Where God has stripped us of every false joy, of every counterfeit. We need to be in that place where God is the only thing we have. Because it's in that place that we come to learn that he is the only thing we need. You can find happiness. God has put that insatiable desire within your heart to search for it. To search for him. But you cannot find it apart from God. So come now into his presence. Confess if you have chased a joy apart from him. Seek him while he can be found. Let's take a minute and pray together.